is the first place in Genesis and the scriptures where if you were reading straight through, as many of us do, maybe the one-year Bible, or just reading through Genesis, you might be tempted to skip over these 10 verses in the next chapter too. I'm sure you as good Presbyterians would not do that, but some people might be tempted because they see the list of names, the first of the genealogies in the scriptures. Uh, this is less of a compelling story. Thank you. Oh, I lost the battery. Why not? I'm the music guy if you're new. I'm not the pastor, the head pastor. Here we go. So I was saying, this is, uh, this is not the compelling, dramatic story that we've had so far. Uh, creation has come. Uh, Eve has come. We have the marriage uh, ordinance, creation ordinance. We have the fall of man. The first murder last week we talked about. And now this passage. Um, but we can't skip this passage. We, uh, we see that the world is being populated. The human race is expanding. Cities are being built. Arts and technology are advancing. And we see both sin and righteousness inhabiting the earth. To understand this passage fully, we've got to back up and consider again the passage that Dave Silvernail spent a whole sermon on, one that really frames the scriptures, and the, at least the Old Testament for us, and Genesis 3.15, you remember what it said, I will put enmity between you, speaking to the serpent, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. So that's this idea that the offspring or the seed of the woman and the seed of Satan would have enmity, would have conflict, plays itself out. Ultimately, this, the second part of that prophecy is that Jesus would crush the serpent, as even as the serpent bruised his heel. That is the, the reference to the cross but and the resurrection. But we have this idea that the, the lines, the seed, the offspring will war, will battle it out. And so the history of the Old Testament is a war between these two lines. And so we might ask, why were the Israelites constantly at war with the Philistines, the Amalekites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, all those guys, the pagan nations around them? Well, because those, they were the seed of the serpent, those who did not follow Yahweh, and intentionally or unintentionally followed Satan. They were Satan's children. It's why when the Israelites destroyed these nations, it wasn't a sinful, selfish, evil genocide. They didn't just pick out a group of people they didn't like based on race or nation or whatever. This was divine command from God as judgment on his enemies, using his people to accomplish and to carry out his justice. St. Augustine in the City of God talked about the history of the human race as being the history of two groups of people, two cities formed by two loves, 
the earthly city by the love of self and the heavenly city by the love of God. So keep that in mind as we read. Last week we did, went through the first half of Genesis 4 and we saw Cain's murder of his brother and God's punishment that Cain would be a restless wanderer. But we also saw God's protection on him. So let's turn now to the last 10 verses of Genesis chapter 4. Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Arad, and Arad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methuselah, Methusheel, and Methusheel fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. Ada bore Jabel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Nama. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Father God, enlighten our hearts and our minds. Open them up to your scriptures. Lord, naturally, when we approach the scriptures, we do not understand them. We are dull and naturally bent away from them, but your spirit brings understanding. So I pray that you would open our eyes every time we approach the scriptures. But now as we take this passage and as we confess that grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Amen. So the first eight verses of this passage deal with Cain's line, the seed of the serpent. Now before we get too far in talking about Cain's descendants, we have to ask, answer the question, where did Cain get his wife? Were there other people that God created, set them all over the earth? If he did, we have a theological problem because those people would not have been descendants of Adam and Eve and they would not have inherited a sin nature from Adam if God created them independently. And as Romans teaches us, all fell with one man so that we would be redeemed through one man. We have to reject this idea that God created other people in groups apart from Adam. And we hold that Adam and Eve were the parents of all the living. And that means, as the kids in the congregation all shudder, that their children married each other and had kids together. 
And those kids married their cousins, their close relatives. So Cain married a close relative. There was no other choice. God's design. Well, isn't that illegal? Isn't that, doesn't that result in, in developmental problems in breeding these things? Well, it is now, and it does now result in those problems. But back then, we have to understand the gene pool was pure. And we've had thousands of years to corrupt it. And so, yes, now it is illegal. Even by the time of the Mosaic Law, Leviticus 20 forbade relations and marriage between close relatives. But as God started the earth, that is how he designed it. Uh, One writer has estimated that when we keep in mind that Adam lived 800 years after Seth was conceived, if he and Eve had been truly about the business of what God had called them to, of being fruitful and multiplying, they could possibly have seen as many, many as a million descendants in their lifetime. So the world is filling up. God is using that first couple to multiply and fill the earth. And so while Adam and his family live in tents, Cain builds a city. Many commentators see this as as, as Cain thumbing his nose at God. Remember, his punishment was that he was going to be a restless wanderer. And they see this as Cain saying, hey, I'm not going to wander. I'm going to build me a city. I'm going to establish some permanence. I'm going to... And, and maybe even saying, God, I don't trust your protection of me. Remember, he had received a mark that would keep others from taking vengeance on him, from killing him. And so he says, I'm going to make my own city. I'll protect myself. Now, we probably don't have to think of something very elaborate. Probably something like a colonial settlement, although they had, these guys lived hundreds of years. Plenty of time to build something up. And he names it after his son, Enoch, who is not to be confused with the Enoch that was Noah's great-grandfather and was taken up by the Lord without a natural death. We'll get to him next week. But we have this city. And we see Cain's descendants continuing and prospering. So we have a few more generations until we get to the seventh generation on Cain's side and a man named Lamech. And as we might say, Lamech has some issues. He's got some problems and some sins in his life. Look at verse 19. And Lamech took two wives, the name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. My last sermon was a month ago about how a man left, leaves his parents to leave and cleave to his wife, his wife, singular. And now this sermon includes the beginning, the concept of big love, of polygamy. The practice of polygamy is never approved of in the scriptures, but if you read closely, it's not often condemned. Because the Bible is an honest historical account, it is often written without condemnation, where we would expect a rebuke. And it even seems at times that God blesses 
the fruit of polygamy. I mean, think about it as, as God establishes Israel, the 12 tribes are 12 brothers from four women, all fathered by Jacob, two wives, two maidservants. And God uses them as the heads of the tribes. Strikes me as strange. I don't know about you. Solomon becomes the heir of David's throne. David, the high king, and and God chooses Solomon as, as his heir. Well, aside from Bathsheba, his mother being the one who David had an affair with, she's also not his first or even his second wife. David has many wives at that point, many other children. But Solomon is chosen. But it would be a mistake, I think, to say that God is blessing the patriarchs and the kings of Israel because of their polygamy. I think God chose those heirs in spite of their parents' sins. We know that the New Testament has a strong standard. First Timothy says that the leaders of the church, any elder or deacon, must be a one-woman man, the husband of but one wife. And the problem with polygamy, aside from the fact that it elevates the man's needs and desires and centers everything around him, is that it is a distortion of the biblical picture of Christ and his bride. As Paul explains in Ephesians 5, he teaches that the marriage of a man and a woman and how they relate to one another explains how Christ and the church relate to each other. And just as Christ laid down his life for his bride, so men are called to lay down their lives for their wives. And that's a mockery, an absolute impossibility if someone has to devote that attention to multiple women. So Lamech, if he is the first bigamist, polygamist, opens the gates to this practice that would ensnare these other men in the line of Christ. Let's move up to, uh, skip up to verse 23 and 24. If you remember back in Genesis 2.23, we had the first love song, a love poem, right? Eve comes forth and Adam breaks into song. She is flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. If that's true, I think Lamech has the first gangster rap here about killing someone. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. It's not clear if he's killed two men or if he's using parallelism there to, to speak about one act. It's also possible that he's just proclaiming that he could kill someone. The Hebrew is a little ambivalent, but he could kill someone if they wounded or threatened him, or if he actually did. Maybe he's just boasting his, his son Tubal has, has forged some instruments of bronze and iron. Maybe he's gotten a hold of those and saying, and now we're, now we're armed. 
Don't come near. But regardless, he's feeling violent. And he feels that, remember, Cain, his, if his slaughter was not punished by death, and in fact, God said that he would avenge Cain. Now, Lamech is saying that God must want, he'll, he'll avenge me 77-fold. I'm the seventh generation here. Or maybe he's saying, I will take that vengeance myself. What a powerful feeling revenge is. When we have been wronged, our flesh cries out to strike back. We can't imagine letting go of that anger. Anger and unforgiveness begin to eat away at us. They are a poison that we think will hurt the other person, but end up killing us. And so Christ takes Lamech's exaggeration, his super exaggeration that he would be avenged 77-fold and, and kind of flips it on his head and says that we are obligated to forgive 70 times 7. Why do we forgive each other? Why has Christ called us to that forgiveness? I believe it's because we've been called, we've been forgiven so much ourselves. These sins that we commit over and over. God doesn't become fed up and draw the line. He continues. His steadfast love endures forever. Those who are called by his name, who are part of his family, God forgives. The blood of Christ covers our sins. And we don't have to worry about, have I done that sin just one too many times? Because all of us are caught in patterns of sin that are difficult to break. Even as he calls us through the Spirit to become more Christ-like. God does not abandon us or fail to forgive us. And we are freed then to forgive others. Now the two wives of Cain produced Jabel, Jubal, and Tubal. Huey, Dewey, and Louie. John Harley points out that all three names are built on the Hebrew phrase yebu, which means to produce. And so even in Cain's line, we see creativity, artistry, accomplishment, achievement. They are filling the earth and subduing it because they were made in the image of God. Jabel is the first nomadic shepherd. Jubal is the first musician. And Tubal Cain runs the first Home Depot. Cain's descendants are leading the way in a number of areas of technical, cultural, and artistic achievement. And we believe that even though it is Cain's cursed line doing these things, that they are still fulfilling the creation mandate. I don't think Moses is setting up saying, okay, here's this line, let's condemn everything they do, and here's Adam and Eve's line, and let's embrace everything they do. I think he's saying... Even among Cain's descendants, we have the cultural mandate 
fulfilled. We have to understand the idea of common grace that God allows believer and unbeliever and Satan sinner alike to receive his gifts. Common grace says that unbelievers are not as depraved as they could be and they have some truth, even if it's not grounded or based on the ultimate truth. That's why we can read Plato and Einstein and many others knowing that they don't derive their wisdom from the scriptures. They still have truth. Now, I think this passage is interesting because Moses seems to be really describing these people and pointing them out. And yet, in a couple hundred years, they will all be wiped away in the flood. We don't hear anything else from Cain's line. This is the last we hear. Moses is just pointing them out. And as far as we know, nothing really survives except how Noah and his family would have brought these artistic achievements and accomplishments and trades and crafts on the ark and, and brought them to the new uh, creation, the new world. But Cain and his family are destroyed. So we have to go back to Adam and Eve. Verses 25 and, and the beginning of 26. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. How difficult it must have been for Adam and Eve to have lost both of their sons, we think, on the same day. Abel to death and Cain to being forced out, to being sent away by the Lord. Especially knowing that Adam and Eve had brought sin into the world and that it had grown up to its full ugliness that their oldest son would kill their second son. But God has given them grace again in the form of Seth. We find out in Genesis 5 that Adam was 130 years old or he had been on the earth 130 years when Seth was born. And the name Seth means appointed or set in place of. There's also the meaning of settled or placed down, as opposed to Cain, who is the wanderer. And then we have Enosh, his son. And unlike the self-reliant Lamech, his name means frail one or mortal and so Lamech, who boasts of his ability to avenge and protect himself and to strike back, Enosh's name conveys the understanding that humans are weak and dependent. We see true humility here in this line. So the line of Seth is established, and it is the line from which David and Christ will come. Luke 3, if you... You read that, you follow back from Christ 
back to David, down all the way, back to Adam, through Seth. So the offspring of the woman from Genesis 3.15, from Eve, after a false start, she, she really believed Cain was going to bring that line and bring that prophecy to fulfillment. It didn't happen. So God says, oh, we're going to start over. We're going to establish this line. And we see a general principle here, I believe, of God rejecting the sinful one and replacing him with someone else. You think through the first king of Israel, Saul. God eventually rejects for a number of reasons. says, David is my new king. I'm going to take Saul out, replace him, even though David is not in his family. Judas, one of the original 12, after his betrayal and, and suicide in Acts, they replace him with Matthias among the disciples. Think of the nation of Israel as they were exiled and, and continued in disobedience late in the Old Testament as they were constantly judged. And then as the Messiah came, as Jesus lived among them and they rejected him, Israel is rejected and replaced by the church. Romans talks about that God keeps a remnant, but that we are the new chosen ones. And so here we see that principle that Cain was originally going to be the one whose line was the seed of the woman, the offspring, but he is replaced by Seth. I believe we can take heed of this. No pastor or ministry leader or a leader in anything should delude themselves that they can do whatever they want and God needs them in that place. God will remove them and install someone new if and when it pleases him. And all Christians can be sure that God punishes sin in his time. Sometimes giving many years is an opportunity to repent and sometimes immediately to show his justice. Revelation 2.5 says, Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. The very last sentence here. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Well, Cain's line is clearly not calling on the name of the Lord. And there's a few different ways maybe you can take this phrase. I really think it refers to, it's a reference to the beginning of communal corporate worship. I don't think they lost their ability to speak of God or, or speak to God. But together, they've come and they call on the name of the Lord. And I think ultimately this passage presents a dilemma and a choice. Are we making a name for ourselves? Or are we calling on the name of God? Are we glorifying His name through how we live? Cain and his descendants are 
seeking to make names for themselves. They're building cities and naming them after themselves or their children. They're making their marks in various trades and crafts, making their reputations as violent people. But Seth Line calls on the name of the Lord. And we are the inheritors of that line. We are a chosen people called to make his name great. As many of our songs declare, and one in particular says, it's not to us, but to your name be the glory. Today, as in all ages, scientific, artistic, cultural advancements, advances happen at the same time that great sin and great depravity happen, at the same time that revival and worldwide evangelism, godliness are evident in our world today, just as it was back then. I believe we are called to pursue the arts. We are called to use and invent new technology. We can craft and use tools in obedience to our calling as believers, as ways to fulfill the cultural mandate, as a way to serve the Lord, to advance his kingdom. Whatever God's gifted you, designed you for, pursue it. Every pastor in America has probably quoted uh, chariots of fire. When I run, I feel his pleasure. What you feel pleasure doing, pursue that. God's probably designed you for that. But an even greater application is that we should be known as a people who worship our great God who humble ourselves before him week in and week out, who lay down our agendas for our lives and seek his agendas, renewing our minds through the study of his word, cleansing our spirits by repenting of our sins, stealing our hearts for for spiritual warfare. As we remind ourselves through our prayers, through our songs, through the sermon and the scripture reading, we remind ourselves of the amazing character of our holy, just, merciful, all-knowing covenant God and the great redemptive truths of the gospel. People may admire our work. They may compliment our creativity or our artistry. We may become well-known for our careers and our accomplishments, but it means very little if we are not calling on the name of the Lord, glorifying Him with our lives. And our model is Jesus, whose earthly obedience and His willingness to go to the cross for us was ultimately to bring glory to his Father. And Philippians says the Father will exalt him and all people will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As we just sang, and we're going to sing again, for God has highly exalted your name. He has enthroned you on high. Jesus, the name above all names.
and all who are not going to wait for that day, but want to glorify him now, said, Amen. Father God, your truth is on every page of the scriptures. Your character, your love, your holiness, and your grace are evident every place we look. We can learn from all scriptures. Lord, teach us from this scripture and from our study of Genesis. Lord, that as we pursue our crafts, our callings, our careers, that we see those things in light of living for you, of bringing glory to your name. God, thank you that Christ was perfectly obedient and humble, that he allowed himself to be brought to earth and humiliated as a servant, taking on human form and becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And that you will exalt him, that you have exalted him through the resurrection. But one day, all people, heaven on earth and under the earth, will declare that he is Lord to your glory. Thank you for that great truth, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.